Hello and welcome to the Place Labs podcast. In this extra session, we continue to explore the theme of hyperlocal. Place Labs' own Rosanna Vitiello is talking to Neil Gaddis about how the local is represented in Shenzhen in China and in Aotearoa, as New Zealand is known in Maori. Neil is originally from New Zealand, but is now based in Shenzhen, where he co-founded Sans. Sans is a place-led agency that develops strategies for changing cities. In today's episode, he also discusses the link between cultural signifiers and community, as well as the role of placemakers in that regard. So here's Rosanna in London and Neil in Shenzhen now. Hi, Neil. So nice to catch up with you. You're in Shenzhen in China. Yes. You are not in lockdown over there. You're in quite a different situation uh, to us in London. What does what does local mean in, in Shenzhen? Because I think from the outside, from elsewhere, we see it as a working city, a very fast-paced city, a kind of young city um, that maybe represents what a lot of people um, consider to be... Uh, you know that you know China. China's heart of, of uh, production has Shenzhen created an instant local culture. No, <laughs> I mean I would I would say it's it's I wouldn't consider an instant culture because it's actually it's more of a synthesis between sort of a local indigenous peoples who live here um, who've lived here for you know the oldest town in, in Shenzhen's over 1700 years old. So it's got a fairly long history. Um, and then along with like the sort of mass immigration from the rest of China for the last 30, 40 years. So really it's a synthesis of these two cultures meeting. And I think it's probably best defined as a sort of an open culture in the sense, uh, even a couple of years ago, you know, that the catchphrase was like, you you arrive in Shenzhen, you're a Shenzhener. And I know from a lot of my friends who, um, you know, if you were Chinese and immigrating to like Beijing or Shanghai, that is not quite the case. There's some um, discrimination, let's say, between people from different provinces and, and all these things. Whereas Shenzhen has a lot less of that, which sort of influences what its culture could be. The problem, I think, from to kind of view and to talk about what its culture is, is that there's a lack of cultural signifiers, let's say, of what this culture is. Maybe as an example, I can talk about a, a project we did where um, we were contracted by the Urban Planning Bureau to look at an urban village and how they, the village corporation, which is a collection of villages, how they basically own the village itself, how it relates to what, what its problems are in terms of the overall development and movement um, of the rest of the city. And we had quite an interesting discussion with the, the leaders of Village Corporation who one of their, their core problems was this idea of cultural inheritance where, you know, the, the villagers themselves had kind of been disconnected from the land that they they own. And, you know, most of them had all shifted out. They lease out their, their buildings or they rent out landlords effectively. And um, though they had sort of you know, uh, for their children had improved the, um, you know, their income levels and things like this, they felt that they were missing out on really having a grounded sense of where they're from and who they are because they don't live in the village anymore. The village doesn't really exist as it had once done. And so one very small thing we sort of did is, is really just a, a provocation or, or, or just a 
something to discuss around the subject was to um, create a bunch of products based around these um, the tiles. So each building in the village is usually covered in um, like these very bright colored tiles and each building is different from the other. Usually, even when the families would return to the villages, you know, you could walk down the street and be like, oh, you know, that's, that's this family's house because it's the pink and blue tile place. One thing at the time when we were doing this, the, the, the government was um, actually painting over all of those tiles to kind of create like a very homogenous facades for all of these buildings. And one of the aspects that was resulted in this, this disconnection of place. And so just using that as a discussion, using that to sort of talk to the residents who are living there, the villager, the elder villagers and the younger villagers, and, you know, where they feel connection or what their sort of responsibilities are. It got us thinking about Shenzhen as a whole and its problem around these lack of cultural signifiers, things that represent the culture that it has. It's very intangible. Yeah. And actually, I think what's interesting is um, the the fact that it, within Shenzhen, which is a city, it's a city where people go to work. You know, it's a city of production uh, in Shenzhen, sorry. Um, the, the the space to make to make culture is within, you know, a former uh, space of production in, in a similar way. So there's a, there's a nice kind of tie in there as to what's appropriate as a place to start to make culture. I was interested, especially in this idea of cultural inheritance. I think that's that's fascinating. I mean, you're originally from New Zealand and you have uh, spent some time there this year. If we take ourselves out of China right now and head to New Zealand, do you think the idea of cultural inheritance um, in New Zealand offers a sort of different attitude to the idea of local? I mean, is our New Zealanders... Uh, shaped by a sensitivity towards their land or landscape or an understanding of that uh, depth, perhaps, that you maybe don't see in the city you're living in in China right now? It's it's very hard to sort of overlay the two. I mean, it, it, it's it's more interesting when we were dealing with um, like a village corporation, which so village corporation is the kind of administrative body that, that looks after a village in the, the city. Um, and it's, it's, you know, owned by shareholders who are the villagers. And so they've created a very, like, a, a legal and, and a financial framework to hold their asset of this land and the connection they have. One thing is I think is quite interesting as a comparison to New Zealand is, okay, so, like, you have the notion of, like, uh, from Māori, you have, like, the notions of tangata whenua or mana whenua. So, like, whether or not you're basically... Tangata whenua, like people of, of, of the land, um, and mana whenua is kind of like a mandate through which you hold mandate over the land of this particular area. And it's, I think, you know, there's some really interesting learnings that could be shared from that sort of understanding of the kind of cultural and social responsibilities of being of a piece of land but they also it's been developed enough into actually like a legal framework right within New Zealand which you know rather than just being a purely um yeah a purely cultural notion of like okay we're the villagers with from this village and can kind of give some indication of how how in the future this can be kind of codified into better understanding and so we because obviously in those villages the villagers do not live in the village, right? The villages rented out to, to residents. Could notions of hospitality to those people who rent could be transferred 
you know, could be understood. In New Zealand, you would say like an indigenous framework, but here I think you'd have to say like sort of a, a local framework versus a immigrant framework. There's a very mono uh, attitude, um, which which occasionally becomes like a, a sort of monocultural attitude that occasionally allows in aspects of Maori culture into that attitude, kind of understanding of of the land and local and what local means. New Zealand is very good at at branding, uh, at understanding its identity, and seeing very very clear communication about what that is. However, I think the downfalls of that is that often um, it doesn't allow for too much diversity and understanding of what that can be, right? One of the things that just springs to mind is a very vivid experience of um, after Auckland had two lockdowns and after the second one, you know, I, I went in, into the city with a friend just out for dinner. Um, and, you know, obviously there's been a drive for people to shop and buy local, right? But what does that local really mean? And it's it's quite disheartening, you know, along K Road is one of the main sort of hospitality zones in Auckland uh, where all of the, the kind of Pākehā or like uh, New Zealander-run businesses and our shops all seem to, or restaurants particularly, all seem to be doing a roaring trade, but a lot of the restaurants run by immigrants seem to like really empty when we just put out this very basic message okay shop local you have to understand like okay what is how is that being interpreted by these people yeah it's difficult <laughs> it's a difficult um question to broach it's um yeah yeah i think i think what you're raising is actually super interesting because i think there is always a notion of local as you highlighted as being from this place and actually very often in big multicultural cities um local is actually a very global kind of attitude because you're you're bringing people in from many different parts of the world and actually the places that you see those uh, cultural signifiers and those expressions of culture, which actually can be stronger when they are brought from one country to another. I mean, if that's all you have, if you literally are limited in what you can bring, the food you bring, the music you bring, the you know textiles you bring, etc., the languages are incredibly strong and potent. Then the interesting aspect is very often in 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 neighbourhoods rather than in city centres or the places where those survive. So actually, it's, it seems to be one of the positive of Shenzhen uh, in some ways is its multiculturalism in, in terms of the hospitality and the invitation of those from elsewhere in China, if not if not in the world. Um, I think it's a fascinating take, actually, on, on the, the pros and cons of, of, of localism, actually. So if you were to look to the future, uh, and you started to allude to some of the work you're doing already in, in Shenzhen, um, if you were to champion the local there, as you highlighted, to try and you know, build <laughs> some of these cultural signifiers, what would you put in place? If you were mayor for the city for the day, what would you do uh, to get those who live there to consider that a little bit more as important? Create mechanisms through which communities or basically smaller bodies can be more self-determinate and can actually identify what matters to them and promote it at, at a much more granular scale than what 
currently happens. So it's quite interesting if I was to talk about the differences between New Zealand and, and China, obviously, is, is Shenzhen, China in general is very good at top-down actions, right? Things are not tailored super specifically to, to different areas or different places. Actually, yeah, in a project we'd done and we carried out in Beijing where we were sort of evaluating the success of five years of, of um, placemaking actions or whatever we'd done in, in an area called Daishlar, um, comparing it to an area that was sort of similar as a control case, but it was also held this big event there. We created this thing, sort of a social infrastructure network where we we had 50 students and masters uh, for anthropology and sociology embedded in the area for two weeks, basically carrying out surveys, but these quite open-ended surveys where they could, um, they were sort of guided in some respects to, you know, reach certain demographics and things like this. The main success we found from that is just by having those people, even for, for two weeks, they, they became far more aware of the nuances of what people were really telling them and the problems they were communicating compared to when we'd done surveys in the past. So, and the point is this, this is also the same for New Zealand, um, where we have a very uh, developed, um, you know, sort of public consultation process and things like that. But it still misses out, like often the people who are too busy, you know, like there's there's a small minority of voices who are extremely loud in, in, in these processes. Um, but by cre- creating a sort of, an infrastructure where um, we actually create the ears on the ground, you know, for these places and can actually, you know, generate like good quality da- data, you know, to inform the actions that will have impact in their communities is something that we, you know, we're always trying to put into our projects. It's very difficult because often the people who are paying for our projects don't necessarily want that much direct feedback. Yeah, communication channels at a very like granular level with people there um, was was amazingly effective for that project. And when we've tried to do it on, particularly for this brewery project, it seems to be quite effective as well. And it seems to be something that could sort of that could not only counter this very like top down way of decision making and you know, okay, you should do this, and then everyone sort of just interprets that top down message overlaid onto whatever place they're applying that to, but actually create like a, a nuanced granular feedback system where the communities who use these places actually have far more of a, of a say, the real communities, you know, not just the, the loudest voices, not the interest groups, not this, that, but the, the real communities who, who make that place. And, you know, coming back to one of our like core, um, our core beliefs, as science is that, you know, I have a problem with the term placement because we're not making places, that the community makes a place. The community creates the value that uh, that is embedded in a place. And, you know, that is something that some people can access that value and other people can't. But if we can create these mechanisms through which the communities who are creating those values get to leverage more of those values for themselves, it, it should create this sort of more sustainable systems at the local where um, communities have much more of a say but they also are, are the beneficiaries of the value that they are creating rather than a sort of outside of you know in, in Auckland or, or in London or whatever would be you know sort of gentrifiers or, or these people coming in and, and accessing that value in China it's a little bit different it's more like the commodification of that value by other forces and then 
not really allowing it to be fed back to the community, which again, like kills the community, which ultimately kills the place, right? Looking forward to the future, I'd say in championing the local, local is just for us as practitioners to create more infrastructure that allows the locals to have, to determine where they're going, to determine what makes their place special. And then that will, you know, it should put us out of a job, really, because we we shouldn't need to be kind of digging around and trying to to pull out these stories to promote things, because the community should have a strong enough sort of you know cultural confidence to to shout those stories out loud and for it to be embedded in the place. Yeah, to tell them. So fascinating. I think it's so fascinating that so many of the aspects you talked about relate back to this idea of communication. In fact, um, whether that's through values, whether that's through, you know, the stories that need to come out. Um, and I think it's it's an often missed aspect within city making, not just in the branding level, as you'd highlighted, but much more in, in the... Um, the mode of building an identity, building a local identity. I think it's it's absolutely fascinating. Neil, thank you very much as ever. It's a pleasure to talk to you and get uh, some insight from uh, both China and New Zealand today. Thanks. That was Rosanna Vitiello talking to Neil Gaddis. What I found interesting in what Neil said was this idea that a lack of cultural signifiers could somehow help new arrivals feel at home. When you arrive in Shenzhen, you're a Shenzhener. It's almost like a neutral ground, something that's not preloaded with meaning. So you can bring your own traditions and your own flavours and a new mix emerges. It says to me that places are never fixed, that they always change, and that feels somehow counterintuitive when we think about community. But then I also found the, the Maori concept of mana whenua fascinating, and what Neil describes as the custody of the land, which in turn builds a rootedness of the tribe in the land. It links to, to his point of, which I think it also chimes with what Peter Rees said in the last episode, that it's community ultimately that creates the value of a place and that community should also reap the rewards. So as I understand it, Mana Fenua is closely linked to Kaiti Akitanga, the practices of looking after the environment and the culturally significant elements. And crucially, that involves a set of responsibilities to those who come before and after you. And this linking of history and future is perhaps what custody or, or guardianship means and what distinguishes it from ownership, which feels to me far more in the present and self-contained. Now, I know far too little about Maori concepts and practices to speak about them, and nor, as he asked me to clarify explicitly, does Neil think that he can speak with any kind of authority about that. And in fact, that's one of the problems, isn't it? As Neil points out, as placemakers, it's not for us to speak for others. It's about working with ears on the ground, as he put it. It's about creating the infrastructure for community to emerge. And that, I think, is what Neil's Sans Agency aims to do and what we here at the Place Labs hope to contribute to as well. As always, we're keen to hear your thoughts and responses, so do share them with us on our Instagram at placelabs or via our website placelabs.co.uk. This has been extra material of the Place Labs podcast exploring the theme of hyperlocal. I hope you enjoyed it. Today's episode was produced by Rosanna Vitiello and Lisa Jones. Lisa also edited it. I'm Julien Klein, and on behalf of the Place Labs Collective, thanks for listening. <laughs>